two of a seven-week sermon series. Pastor Nate introduced that last week, and it's entitled Making Him Known. That's the, the, the name for this entire series, because we just simply want to be a people who are growing in our desire and growing in our ability to make Jesus Christ known, both here and around the world. Uh, I believe that I need to grow in that. I'm sure you feel that as well, that you need to grow in being able to make him known. And so this sermon series is intended to do just that. Let's grow together. Let's hear about Jesus together, and then let's go and tell how beautiful and glorious and good he is. Now, as we equip you, we want to do the exact opposite of of, of instituting something new or, or reinventing the wheel. No, we want to go back to the basics and just look, how did the early Christians introduce others to Jesus? And so the Gospel of Mark is our focus. Mark was written to do just that, answer the question, who is Jesus? you got to hear about this guy. Let me tell you, this is who Jesus is. And so we can think of no better way uh, than allowing the Word of God to introduce the person of God to, in hopes of inviting others to become the people of God. And so uh, we're just going to step right back into that again today. We're here to, to learn from Mark what some of the very first Christians learned. We're here to reflect on and respond to these first-person, original eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ that have literally been changing human history ever since he walked the face of the earth. So we're just about to hear four scriptures read. Our main two texts will be from Mark. So Emily's going to read a longer section, Mark's introduction to who Jesus is. John is going to read a section of Mark chapter 2 that just links right in with that same theme. And then Don's going to come and read to us from Hebrews 1. And then Kathy's going to read to us uh, from a beautiful passage in Isaiah that... Uh, really describes Jesus in a very, very special way. So I can't wait for you to hear that. But as you listen, just try to pretend you don't know who Jesus is. That is extremely difficult in our culture. Everybody thinks they know who Jesus is. But let's try to just put that aside and for a moment allow the Word of God to prompt this question in us. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Let's let the Word of God answer that question. So Emily, if you would come up and read Mark chapter 1 to us, that'd be great. Mark 1, 1 through 20. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. Mark chapter 2, 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Hebrews 1, 1-3 Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isaiah 40, 9 through 11. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer, bearer of the good news. Lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might and with his arms rolling for him. Behold, sorry. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like, like the shepherd, he will tend his flock. In him, in his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Thank you for your patience.
Mark's gospel. The gospel of Mark is written to answer the question I posed, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you want to know who Jesus is, read the gospel of Mark. All of scripture reveals Jesus, but Mark doesn't waste a drop of ink in getting to the point. He is off to the races in Mark chapter 1, introducing us to Jesus. And so if you want to introduce a friend or a family member or a small group to Jesus, uh, this is a great way to do it. And so uh, we're just simply going to read through the text of Mark 1 through 20 today, and we're just going to see how Mark introduces us to Jesus. We're going to see a lot of details, right? There's a lot of vivid details about folks testifying to who Jesus is. But these aren't just random facts on some kind of resume. They're actually all details that are skillfully woven together, presenting a unified picture of the the royal authority and the compelling beauty of who Jesus Christ is. So starting in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I want to remind us that the individual Mark is introducing us to has a name. It's easy to skip over that, right? But Jesus has a name and he has a title. And names have meaning, right? So let's just be reminded together what the name Jesus means. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Now listen to the nuance. It doesn't just mean Jehovah brings salvation or Jehovah works salvation, but Jehovah is salvation. Jesus is the salvation of Jehovah. God doesn't just save by sending a third party or a representative. No, God himself is our Savior. And there's two names, right? Jesus Christ. Well, that's not first name Jesus, last name Christ. No, Jesus has a name and a title. I have a name and a professional title, right? I'm Ryan Hughes, physical therapist. That's my name and my professional title. And that's similar to how Jesus has a name and a title. So his title is Christ. And Christ means anointed one, the promised Messiah, the divine and royal son of God. Now remember, in ancient Israel, you didn't get to be king by just saying, I'm king. You were anointed. You were anointed into the role of representing God to the people as king. And being anointed meant being filled with the spirit of the Lord. It meant being filled with God's wisdom, with God's strength. And so who is Jesus? Just by his name alone and his title, Jesus Christ is the salvation of Jehovah. He's the anointed, royal, authentic son of God. He's the promised Messiah, filled with the spirit and anointed with the wisdom and strength of God. He's the promised Messiah. What does that mean? Mark's launching right into that in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, well, Isaiah is brought in here as just a representative of all the Old Testament prophets. In no way is Mark trying to limit our attention merely to the the writings of one single prophet, although Isaiah is just kind of held up as a a forerunner or a, a spokesman for the entire body of work of the prophets. That's a big chunk of our Old Testaments, is it not? And they all point to our need for rescue. They point to our desperate human condition. They point to our our guilty lives before the eye of an all-seeing God. But the prophets also point to, over and over again, a rescuer. 
They point to a coming deliverer, a Messiah, an anointed one who can save the people from their sins. Specifically, in verse 3, Mark quotes from the prophets and says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, or I send my herald before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, of course, a big reason for that quotation is to set up the prophetic fulfillment of the ministry of John the Baptist. That would prepare the way for Jesus. He was a herald saying, get ready. But I want you to notice how they introduce the individual here. Again, we're, we're, just, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? And so the voice of one crying in the wilderness is doing this. He's saying, prepare the way of the Lord. That's who Jesus is in that prophecy. So prepare the way of the Lord means prepare the way of Jesus. Now, what does the word Lord mean? That's something we use all the time in Christian circles. But remember, Lord means someone who has power and influence and authority. To be Lord is to be master. It's to be ruler. So who is Jesus? Well, he's the promised rescuer. All of the prophets were pointing to this. He's the one who can deliver us from sin and destruction. He's the one who is fulfilling all the promises of the prophets. And as he takes his place as the Messiah, he's also being recognized as the Lord, the Master. He's one people should prepare for. He's one people should get ready for because he has power and influence and authority. He's the Master. That's who Jesus is. He's the Lord. And then in verses 4 through 6 of our text, we actually uh, see this prophecy fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is that voice crying in the wilderness. He's fulfilling this this messenger role. He's fulfilling this, this herald role that the prophets had promised. So we see John speaking of Jesus, pointing to Jesus in fulfillment of that prophecy. So verse 4 of Mark 1 John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Clearly, we can all agree that John is preparing the way for Jesus, right? John is fulfilling these prophetic promises But I want you to think, how does he prepare the way? What is the tone of his ministry? What are are the qualities of preparation that he is leading the people into? How does he make the path straight for the coming of Jesus? He proclaims repentance, right? He highlights the need for forgiveness of sins. And in so doing, John is stepping right into the ministry of the Old Testament prophets. And so those strange details about him being clothed with camel's hair and wearing a leather belt and locusts and wild honey, all of those details would, would clue the reader into, like, John is, is continuing what the Old Testament had put forward. John is, is the fulfillment and the culmination of all these old prophecies. It's as if John were saying to the people, remember all those warnings? Remember all those promises? Remember all those teachings? They can all be consolidated. They can all point to one individual, and he's almost here, 
And we need to get ready. Here's how we're going to get ready. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to repent. We're going to cry out to God for forgiveness. So who is Jesus? Well, he's, he's the one you need to get ready for. He's the one you need to repent before. And he's the one God sends when you need forgiveness. He's the one God sends when you need forgiveness. Jesus is the salvation of Jehovah. Now we get to hear from John himself heralding the the Christ in Mark 1, 7 and 8. So verse 7, it says, And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Just look at those first three words. And he preached. So John the Baptist wasn't just a baptizer. (laughs) He was also a preacher, right? That word, preacher, means herald. He was an official messenger bringing public news from an authority that he represented. He was a herald. John spoke with the authority of God. He was that voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for the one with authority. Prepare the way for Jesus. And this is this public message from the official herald. After me comes one who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And what John is doing in that statement, after me comes he who is mightier than I, is he's trying to give us a sense of scale. He's trying to say, listen, we prophets are small, and Jesus is big. We prophets are weak, and Jesus is mighty. It's similar to what you might do if you wanted to tell somebody how big a blue whale is. Let's imagine someone's never seen a blue whale, but you draw them a picture. It's on paper, so it's not to scale. And you say, this, this kind of looks like a fish, but, but I want to explain more. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw a tiny little human next to this whale for reference. So if you were swimming here, you'd be this tiny little human next to this massive, powerful sea creature. So that tiny outline of a human shows the scale of how massive a real live blue whale is. That's kind of what John is doing here. He's, he's trying to say, the prophets, they, they are a big deal. The prophets are a big deal. But compared to the mighty one who's coming, the prophets are lowly. The prophets are unworthy. Merely servants, merely heralds. The mighty one is coming. I can offer you this rudimentary forgiveness, and he can offer you the most complete forgiveness of all. I can immerse you in water as an act of faith and obedience, but he can immerse you in the Holy Spirit. I'm just a messenger, John is saying. I'm just a herald. But my message comes from a king, And the king will soon be here. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the mighty one whose impact and whose authority looms much larger even than the prophets. Jesus is the one who can immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9, the herald, John, gets to meet the royal son, Jesus, the servant, John 
gets to meet his master. So let's look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That is such a beautiful moment of unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's this perfect unity between the actions and words of Jesus Christ and all of the triune Godhead. This shows us that Jesus was not on earth acting unilaterally of his own accord. No. All of his words and actions were in full cooperation and fellowship with all that God is. The Spirit descended on him as a, as a type of divine anointing. He's the Christ, the anointed one. And so as the Spirit was coming on him in a visible form, God was saying to the world, this is my Christ. This is my anointed one. This is my beloved son. And notice that the heavens were torn open and there was no herald involved. This was a message so important to God the Father. He did not send a messenger. He spoke directly over his son, giving his direct testimony about Jesus. This is what God wants you to know about Jesus. This is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. He is full of my spirits. We are united in our purpose, our actions, our words. So who is Jesus? He's the son that the father loves. He's the anointed one filled with the spirit. He's the son who pleases his father. And he's the one who is united in fellowship with the father and the spirit. Now the spirit filling Jesus Christ, prompts him to take a particular action. Let's look at that in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. This might surprise us initially. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Sort of funny, right? And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's not so strange if you're part of a people who disobeyed God in the wilderness. It's not so strange if you're part of a people who trace back every evil to giving in to the temptations of Satan. Jesus in the wilderness was proving that he was the true Adam, he was the true Israel. Jesus was the true son that pleased his father in all things, even in the wilderness, even in confronted with Satan. The nation of Israel had been in the wilderness and failed. They grumbled, they disobeyed, they gave into temptation. They did not please their heavenly father. Jesus did. Jesus was tempted, and where Israel and Adam failed, Jesus prevailed for you, for me. Who is Jesus? He's the true and righteous Israel. He's the true and better Adam. Jesus is the one who always obeyed and pleased his father. 
Jesus is the one who didn't buckle under Satan's temptations. Jesus is the salvation of Jehovah. Now, we're about to hear the testimony of Jesus himself. Let's look at Mark 1.14. Now, after John was arrested, that's a little detail kind of saying, all right, the ministry of John is over. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, I want you to notice something before we finish that verse. From a literary perspective, Jesus has not been quoted for a single word yet in Mark's gospel. So we've had 14 verses where others are speaking about Jesus and other details are being given signifying Jesus' credentials. John the Baptist has spoken about him. Isaiah and the prophets have spoken about him. God the Father has spoken about him. Mark the author has spoken about him. So verse 14 functions as a setup for the first words of Christ in this text. And then verse 15 is actually going to give us the quote, the content of those words from this man. So all of Mark's introduction is, is building, building, building to verse 15. It's impossible to overstate this. Mark has told us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he's the royal son of God, that he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, that his massive power and authority make the prophets look small and insignificant by comparison. Mark is holding nothing back. He's begging you to pay attention to this man. He's begging you to listen to the words of this man, Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God, declaring the good news of Jehovah, not as a herald, but as the actual royal son, what is this man going to say? What is this man going to say? Here it is, Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. The royal son of God, the long-anticipated one, is saying to a guilty people, I am here. The salvation of Jehovah is me. The promises of God are true, every single one, and they are yes and amen in me. God reigns, and he is ruling through me. The kingdom of God starts now, and you are invited into my righteous, royal kingdom. And the price of admission is this, merely repent and believe. Agree with John the Baptist. Agree with Isaiah and the prophets. Agree with Mark, the gospel author. Agree with my heavenly Father who loves me. Accept my testimony. Accept my salvation. Accept my authority. Repent and believe. That is good news. That is the gospel. The gospel's not merely this vague idea that you can kind of casually give mental assent to. The gospel's not just a philosophy. It's not just a way of life. It's not just a cultural phenomenon. No, the gospel is good news about a person. 
And his name is Jesus. It's good news about a person. And his name is Jesus. And his title is Christ. His name means Jehovah is salvation. And his title means anointed one. The royal, authoritative son of God. Now let's keep reading in Mark's gospel as this this royal one, this royal son of God, uses his authority to speak to some of the first subjects in his new kingdom. Let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And this links so closely with Mark chapter 2. Let's look at Mark 2, 13 and 14. Jesus, he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Coming to Jesus rightly changes everything. Coming to Jesus rightly changes everything. So we need to be careful. If we, if we think, if you think you've come to Jesus, but very little has changed about your life, be extremely careful. Perhaps you've not come to Jesus at all. Because when Jesus calls, everything changes. When Jesus calls, disciples answer. When Jesus calls, disciples come running. When Jesus calls, disciples drop things. John 10, 27 says it this way. Jesus, as the good shepherd, proclaims, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's really quite simple, isn't it? When Jesus changes a disciple's profession, they leave their old profession behind. When Jesus changes a disciple's family relationships, they simply follow his lead. Coming to Jesus rightly means simply just doing what he says because he's the royal son of God and he's the salvation of Jehovah in the flesh. I mean, to who else are you going to go? There's no one better to follow. There's no one better to obey. And following Jesus just simply means obeying his instructions. I think God wants to remind us of how simple that is today. Just simply doing what he says. And so I need to be asked this morning, perhaps you do as well, do you obey the instructions of Jesus? Do you obey the instructions of Jesus? Pastor Francis Chan gives a really powerful illustration of this concept. He, he reminds uh, his hearers of the simple game, Simon Says. You know, when you're playing the game, Simon Says, uh, and you're the leader, you have this temporary magical authority in the game to command certain actions of the followers, right? So you say, Simon Says, pat your head, and everybody playing the game has to pat their head, right? Pretty simple. But Chan points out rightly, I believe, how differently we treat the commands of Jesus. Jesus says to all his disciples, follow me. He also says, 
go make disciples. But am I actually doing that? Are you actually doing that? Disciples of Jesus sometimes confuse memorizing the Bible, talking about the Bible, and going to meetings about the Bible with living the Bible. I just want to take that concept and apply it to the Gospel of Mark. Just imagine if James and John stayed sitting in their fishing boat with their dad when Jesus said, follow me. What if they memorized the command? What if they could repeat it back to the Lord? Jesus, you said follow you and you would make us fishers of men. So we're going to talk to our dad about that and we're going to memorize that. What if they never actually stepped out of the boat (laughs) and walked behind him? That wouldn't be obedience. It's not obedience to merely read the commands of Christ. It's not even merely obedience to preach the commands of Christ. It's not merely obedience to memorize the commands of Christ. We want to be people who don't just know what Jesus says. We want to be people who do what Jesus says, who metaphorically step out of the boat and follow him. So Jesus said, all authority is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So what percentage of your week includes disciple making for Jesus? That's a hard question for me to answer. But that's, that's the kind of thing disciples need to hear. Let's be a people who don't just read, who don't just listen, who don't just discuss, who don't just study, but a people who obey, a people who take action, people who step out of the boat and follow Jesus. That's going to look differently for different ones among us. But we all want to be a people who respond rightly to the royal son of God, the anointed one, the one whom God has put forward as our savior. So are you ready to take action? One of the main reasons we're studying the book of Mark is to help each one of us, and myself included, to become better equipped to obey this command of Christ to make disciples, to follow him. Every single follower of Jesus, every single member and elder at Providence is called to make disciples. And one of the simplest ways we can do that, the humblest ways we can do that, the most effective ways we can do that is by reading scripture together with others. Particularly, we want to highlight this book of Mark. So I trust that today you have seen and heard the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the authority of Jesus Christ. But I do want to remind you of there's more to Christ. In his mercy, Jesus is not just mighty, but he's also merciful. He's not just powerful, he's also gentle. Jesus is commanding, but he's also compassionate. So I don't want us to miss that this morning. And you can see that truth beautifully portrayed in Mark chapter 2. But before we pick that up, I want you to hear it in Isaiah 40 one more time. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God, Yahweh, comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock Like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
We don't just follow Jesus because he's the master, although he is. We don't just follow Jesus because he has all authority, although he does. We also follow Jesus because he's good and he's gentle. He is a beautiful savior. And let's see that in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So this is right after he called Levi. Uh, He said, follow me. He rose and followed him. And then we pick up in verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's not be confused that this mighty one only came for the rich and the famous and the powerful. He did not. This mighty one, who did he come for? Who did he come to call? Sinners sick. And first and foremost, that includes disobedient disciples. I preach this morning as a disobedient disciple to disobedient disciples. And I I wept with remorse yesterday as I considered my stubborn, willful resistance to the calls and the commands of this royal son of God. But the call of Christ to repent is also a call to come and be forgiven. It's a call to the contrite. It's a call to those who confess their disobedience. It's a call for those who ask for help to obey. Repent and believe. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is here. And his name is Jesus. Now as you step forward into obedience, based on this text, as you proclaim the name of Jesus, you will typically encounter two possible responses. You will no doubt meet people who think that they are well and people who know that they are sick. There will be people who think that they are righteous and those others who know that they are sinners. Now, those who think they are well, those who think they are righteous are deceived. Are they not? They are blind. But because of the blindness and deadness of sin, that's the, that's the issue, the blindness and deadness of sin, some of those will not see their need for Jesus. They're going to turn away from the beauty and majesty of Jesus in unbelief. And we're going to expect that, but we're going to pray for God to have mercy on them. Nobody would have expected Levi, the tax collector, to repent and follow Jesus. Nobody. But that's the kind of power and authority that Jesus has. That's also the kind of compassion and and love that Jesus has. So we're going to pray for those people. We're going to ask God to have mercy on them. We're going to plead with God for the sake of their eternal souls. And I know you're doing that. Please continue to do that more and more. But as we present Christ, keep another category in mind. Based on these words of Jesus, look in particular for the people who know that they are sick. Look in particular for the people who are grieved by their sins, who feel trapped who feel helpless, who feel hopeless. Listen for folks who might be experiencing appropriate regret towards God. Remember that Jesus, the mighty one, chooses to use his power as a skillful physician, as a gentle shepherd. 
So those individuals in particular could be exactly who God is working in ahead of time, positioning them to ask earnestly for the salvation of Jehovah in the person of Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? He's the mighty one who came to heal the sick. He's the royal son of God who has come to call sinners to repentance. He's powerful, but he's gentle. He's the only one who has the final authority to forgive sinners all the way to the core of their being for all eternity. So let's pray for opportunities to introduce Jesus to others. Let's confess our sins to our master. Let's ask the royal son of God to be at work in the world around us. I'm going to lead us in prayer to those ends, and then I invite you to follow me in public prayers of response.